Well, I don't doubt it. All right. Oh, bad call, bad call. This is bad all the way around. Alright, we've gone from the age of enlightenment to the age of revolution. So we gotta we got we've got nobody's listening today. So we're gonna talk about revolutions. Particularly we're gonna talk a little bit about the American Revolution. But to get there, we're gonna talk about just things changing pretty pretty quickly all the way around. You say yay, you're excited about the steam engine? Yeah. Okay, good. 1775, arguably <laughs> the beginning of the age of revolution, because James Watt's steam engine is patent. They had steam engines for years. They had steam engines for you know, almost 100 years, so that in and of itself is nothing new. It's just that the earliest models were huge and inefficient. You know, they, they were the size of a house. Pardon me? <laughs> like computers. Are, well, someday we'll have them in the, in the houses. What are you crazy? This thing takes up an entire room. It would never do. But that's a, it, they're, they're more something where people went, huh, than anything else uh, for about 100 years. But there's a Scottish inventor named, and if you ever want to do yourself a favor, Google Scottish inventors. An amazing number of things for the last 200 years have been invented by the Scottish. But Scottish inventor James Watt, for whom the electrical unit Watt was named, and also the guy who came up with the concept of horsepower. So like I say here, he's, he's kind of like the patron saint of units of measurements in your physics class. <laughs> this guy, rock. Anyway, came up with the idea of using separate chambers for the condensing chamber and the working cylinder. Oh, thank you, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> now, for most of us, we sit there and go, uh, uh, whatever. <laughs> I was waiting for that pop-up. Thank you. No more pop-ups, please. Anyway. Please go away. There you go. Anyway, but the idea is that you didn't have to have, you didn't have to wait in between strokes. Because all the other ones you had to wait. It had to heat up, and then it had to cool down, then it had to heat up, and then it had to cool down. It had to be huge. And he's like, no, no, you don't have to have something quite that big. Which means that it was smaller and more efficient, which means that you could put it in, say, a factory or something. It could actually be used. So suddenly, you had the beginning of what became known as the Industrial Revolution. Everything changed, like, overnight, within a couple of decades. Everything focused on something different. You move from agricultural to industrial economies. You move from these uh, very highly skilled, handmade manufacturing sorts of things to machine-based, large factory-built things. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a thing, yeah. Like with anything, it's both good and bad. Change society all over the place. Suddenly, more unskilled workers could find relatively decent paying jobs. Up until this point, you go, well, you have the craftsman who can make a bench or can make a, a, a table or who can make a whatever. These guys have a job. You, good luck. You know, otherwise, you're going to be stealing a loaf of bread or something. Yeah. But suddenly, you go, well, if all I have to do is basically work the loom, all I, or work the press, or I have to, if all I have to do is, is learn some basic skills, and then do, yeah, I can get a job doing this anyway. Manufactured items became more affordable and more accessible to the common family. It wasn't just that people who are rich get decent things. Anybody could potentially get decent things, because more decent things are available at a lower price. 
So a middle class develops. Up until this point, there's really pretty much just been the crazy rich people and the crazy poor people. But suddenly you've got this middle class of people who go, actually, I'm kind of comfortable. It never really existed before. That middle class creates this buffer between the other classes and creates economic stability. So, arguably, Isaac Watts making the steam engine created the concept of a stable economy that could actually roll with good years and bad years with things because you have this buffer of a middle class that could absorb a lot of that. Put together, that means the standard of living shot upward enormously through most of the civilized world. In terms of your general day-to-day -day average, there's still very poor people, there's still very rich people. That didn't necessarily change. But in general, everything was slightly better for everybody all the way around. The life expectancy doubled in, like, almost overnight. Within the span of a couple of, of decades, all of a sudden people are living longer because people are eating more, people are generally healthier, their homes are better and generally nicer. All because a Scotsman invented the steam engine. So it really isn't, it's not dumb to talk about that. As usual, though, it's not quite that simple <clears throat> because the increased dependence on machinery also brought social ills with it as well as social benefits. Factory owners built factory towns based around their factories. They began treating their workers just like their cogs in the machine. You, pardon me? There you go. Um, north and south. That's what I was thinking. So there's all sorts of things where you say, it is possible for you to go to work at five years old in the factory, work there until you die at 55. And then they just put somebody else in there at your place. And you go, well, that's just a machine then. I mean, if, if all this is to somebody who spends their whole life there until they wear out and you replace with somebody else, they're just part of the mechanism. There's a group called the Luddites that followed a guy named Ludd who may or may not have ever even existed. But they were afraid that machines were going to push human workers out. Have you, have we even heard that argument in modern age? It's just like, well, yeah, all of a sudden you're not going to have any people. What they didn't realize is that it actually made more jobs for more people because now you had to have people working the machines you had larger factories, you had to have people who repaired the machines. More people actually got work because of the use of machines than had been working before. The Luddites felt more than they thought, and so they sabotaged the machines. In fact, this is the time period where we get the word sabotage. Because they, they were like, oh, if we just destroy the machines, everybody will work. And you go, no, then you put the factories out, and less people work. Think it through. In fact, Parliament made machine breaking a capital crime in 1812. You will be killed by the state if you break a machine. It's that important. More products are being made available for a less price, but they're also lesser quality, right? Which is still a concept that we're familiar with today, right? But that's kind of the whole point. Isn't that the whole point of places like McDonald's? Is to say, Yes, it's not gourmet food, it's not really well-made food, but it's made quickly on an assembly line, and you can get it for a relatively cheap price compared to a lot of other food. Go. Just, 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 just move on through. And we'll just move you through as if you're going through an assembly line. That's the whole point of McDonald's, right? So we can make fun of McDonald's and say, oh, it's cheap, crappy food. It's trying to be. That's what it's trying to do. Technically, we're back to James Watt. Children are put to work in factories. Child mortality starts to increase. Yes, life expectancy is better, but you get a lot more children working in, in, in factories and being not happy and not living as long. But again, flip-flop. 
social ills from social remedies. And so we have to come up with new ways to fix the things we've just screwed up. So you got more people suddenly living in cities and factory towns and things like that, so you need better roads to get them there. But you need better building materials, better social management. You can't just say, well, we're all living on farms and we all just kind of get along. No, nope, no. Nope. So you also need to get inventions like cement and rolled asphalt and things like that to build these cities, to get people places, to get the goods from one place to another, because it's not just something you can take to, yeah. <laughs> okay. Didn't the Romans invent it? They used They used, but possible. Yeah, but I, I, I also know because I was I was reading uh, something just this week. Uh, look it up. Uh, reading something this week where they were talking about. Uh, developing concrete for use in uh, or cement. In, they were talking about, which is why I used the word. But thank you for that. They were talking about using cement for building product uh, for building buildings and things. So maybe it got out of use. I don't know. Anyway, at least we're off. Thank you. Thank you very much. Important important safety tip. And they also developed things like Sunday schools. What's a Sunday school? Since kids they get a grand total of one day off on Sunday, and there are no schools for them to go to because they work all week. So churches came up with the idea of, like, well, how do we do outreach to this community? What do they actually need? Well, they need to teach their children how to read and write. So since we only have Sunday to do it, why don't we start schools on Sunday to teach the children how to read and write? I got an idea. Why don't we use the Bible as a primer? So Sunday school started off as specifically an outreach going, let's look at a community, figure out what it is they actually need, and share the gospel with them reaching that need. That was the point of Sunday school. So um, it's always interesting because several years ago we were talking about revamping Sunday school somehow, said something about making it an outreach, and people were like, well, that kind of defeats the purpose of Sunday school, doesn't it? I'm like, <laughs> no, actually, <laughs> that's kind of where I started. Anyway. Socialist groups and workers' unions emerged to support the abused working class to try to help them because they're being oppressed. Unfortunately, sometimes socialist groups and unions oppress the working class because the whole point of them is you're a working class. I kind of want to keep you that way so that you can. Oh, yeah. My dad's Yikes. Well, um, my dad my dad worked for years for Caterpillar, and so, and I worked uh, in public affairs, which meant I, I dressed like management and spent all my time talking to union and, and shop workers. You know, that's because uh, we're always trying to to connect the two. And I was I was continually amazed. I'm like, oh, the union is so good at helping with this and this and this, and so detrimental with working like this and this and this. Why can't they just think this through more? Uh, so I, I, I grew up understanding at a very deep, rich level just how helpful and positive unions are, just how destructive and self-seeking unions are. Yay, humans. Yay, humans. <laughs> okay. So, technically, you could say the Industrial Revolution served both to pound down and exalt the individual at the same time. <laughs> so you're, you're just a cog in the machine, you're a cog in the machine, but every individual matters. It's not just rich and poor, it's you as an individual, and how do I help you? 
So what kind of social conditions would that create? All of a sudden, you care about the little guy. The little guy is not just some poor person to be trampled underfoot, and yet, even more so, you've been mechanistically trampled underfoot. What kind of social condition would you say that that would make? Tension. Tension, because suddenly you're being educated even at a, at a low-income low level. People are telling you that every individual matters, and yet you're literally like ground the machine. So you're just like, yeah, it's kind of tense. Yeah. And there's also the tension between union and management. As soon as you have union, there's, yes. there's always tension. And, and for the, so for the first time, it's not just, well, there's some rabble in the streets. It's like, no, there's an organized group saying, you who are in power don't get to do what you've been doing. Never educate peasants. Thank you for playing. <laughs> for those listening at home, the Romans invented concrete, and yes, you should educate peasants. All right. How would this logically affect the common man's perception of religion? This this sense of well, how how do you think that 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 tension that we just talked about that that mindset might affect how you view what it means to be in relationship with God or in relationship with the church. Okay. Yep. It's not just a top-down thing where you, you go, no, God cares about every single one of you. You, you have personal worth. Okay. How else might that affect? Unions to counteract management. So yeah, so you, yep. So you do start to get more and more people going. You know, religion's great, but we can tweak this. We can tweak this a little bit to be more amenable to the common guy. What else? Well, that's the nature of this class. Yeah. <laughs> Whether they're, I don't know, like, like in the Sunday schools, you know, um, I don't know, power of the content, or trying to work to something that's really... Actually, that's, an, a, that's a nice way of putting it in, in, in terms of sitting there and thinking, um, do we just do what we've always done and, and maintain what we've always done in the midst of all this change, or do we sit there and say, well, things are changing. How do we roll with that? How do we, how do we use these, these totally different social environments, totally different social contexts to minister to people in a totally different way? So you're going to see more and more churches bending, flexing, becoming very, very different very, very quickly, and other churches becoming extremely entrenched because they're management, and they're seeing themselves as management. What were you going to say? Well, that's what I was going to say. You either got uh, churches where management went in, churches where the common people went, or if you could get them together, then they would know, you know, get to know each other personally and maybe help in the in the workforce where the other way would be detrimental Absolutely. Um, Jacques Ellul argued one time that he wrote a whole book on this, that the churches have always echoed their society. They they, they don't think that they are, but they're they're built the way their society is. There's a reason why during the Middle Ages 
the biggest church going had a guy that had a special hat sat in robes on a big throne and told everybody else what to do because that's what everybody did that's what all the societies did arguably we're going to see more and more of that not just not just that particular mindset but by the time you get into the the, the, the 19th and 20th centuries you're going to see in revolutionary countries priests wearing fatigues and running around with the rebels and saying you know what we need to be liberating people you're going to see at, at, in in a uh, in a very sensationalistic and consumer oriented 1980s you're going to see mega churches grow that are very consumer oriented and you know talk about we need to get numbers and numbers and numbers churches tend to reflect their societies you're going to get churches that reflect all these different aspects of their societies okay Last week we talked about the French Flower War and, uh, and, the, and the riots that erupted and we said there's violence in the streets because there was a series of bad harvests and wheat prices just skyrocketed and people couldn't get the food that they wanted. But there's more to it than that because there always is more to it than that. The French monarchy, centuries, this French monarchy had always, always had the idea that the king is in charge of making sure that the people eat. The king is in charge with protecting the people. Though we do know that Louis XIV yeah, he didn't necessarily care. He's out there playing, doing his own thing. As long as he's got his fancy dances and his gold and his mistresses, everything's fine. But they had passed these strict laws to keep uh, a tight rein on food distribution, prices of food. Uh, they would have food shipments that they would send to, to uh, hard-struck areas. But once you get to Louis the Sixteenth, the French government was trying something new. This economic theory of laissez-faire, laissez-faire, laissez-passer, the idea of leave it alone, let it pass. If you just let the market do its own thing, it'll write itself. Okay, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, just naturally, isn't that what capitalism is? Sort of. We still do price, you know, and distribution caps. Well, did you yeah, well, that's ideally. Ideally, what we're trying to do now is to say, nah, we're not going to control everything, but we are going to regulate it a little bit. They're like, no, no, don't regulate it at all. So to these new economists, the best sort of economy is one where the government doesn't intervene at all, which is why wheat sellers were allowed to dictate their own prices without interference, which is why people are starving in the streets and rioting, because wheat prices went bananas, because they could. Now, the hardest part of this is that there was this widespread public belief that there was a conspiracy to kill off the poor. That that's why Louis was doing this. There's this pact of famine. We're going to use famine as a weapon, and which is it's not even remotely true. It's not, they were just saying, no, it'll write itself, it'll write itself. So the common people are divided between the people who rightly thought that Louis' government was inept and unable to help the working man, and those who incorrectly felt that Louis was attempting to kill the working man. Those are the two kinds of people walking the streets in France. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, there don't seem to be many people that seem in favor of... There's some rich people sitting here for like, I think this will work. But you can see why people like Louis Antoinette, you know, but you can see why France is getting primed for a revolution, right? And then France. <laughs> oh, don't! Don't! I think I have some French blood in me. 
That's about the only thing I don't have, is a drama <laughs> first one. Okay, Revolutionary War breaks out in, in America. We just talked about last week in February, Parliament had declared that Massachusetts was in open rebellion because they refused to trade with England because of those intolerable acts that we talked about last week. So they ordered Lieutenant General Thomas Gage, who's an old friend of George Washington's from the French and Indian War, to bring order to the colony. And I have to stop here. Moment of honesty. When asked about the Revolutionary War, most people answer confidently about one year. What year do you know Revolutionary War was going on? Yeah, if anybody knows any year at all, it's 1776. A lot of people don't know any other year other than 1776. From America's point of view, the war lasted from 1775 until 83. It's an eight-year-long war. I even asked my, my family last night, who love history, and I'm like, how long was the war? And they're like, one, two, three years, four years, eight years. Most people don't know that. So I gotta stop and, and say, I, I gotta talk a little bit about this because we should know this. This is important. For the British, it lasted from 1775 to 1814. Because arguably, you could argue the War of 1812 was them saying, we never acknowledged really that you were independent in the first place. Not really. We signed a treaty so you'd stop killing us, but we kept killing you on the high seas and we kept saying, well, of course, we'll get them back. It took Napoleon and fighting Napoleon for them to stop fighting us. Which is why, in America, we supported Napoleon. Funky, funky bedfellows. They were still angry enough with us that half a century later, they supported the Confederacy, England did, to destabilize the Union. It was We didn't really have a good relationship with England until World War I, when they went, we speak the same language! <laughs> Brother! Uh, <laughs> So, I actually have to do like a kind of a whirlwind revolutionary war timeline because people just don't know their own country. So, most of us, I'll hit the highlights of things that you go, oh, I've heard of that. Okay, Battles of Lexington and Concord. Gage is being brought in to try to bring order to Massachusetts. So, the first thing he's going to do, because he's not an idiot, he says, I know that they have ammunition and weapons and things stored at Concord, Massachusetts, because we gave it to them. So I know, we gave them the ammunition, we gave them the weapons, and we trained them how to use it. So we totally need to get that stuff back before we do anything else. Silversmith, Paul Revere, rides to Concord to warn the militia there to be prepared. Right? So he's, he's like, you got to know that they're coming. A week later, militia leader Dr. Joseph Warren, so I had to stop there for the Joseph Warren. <laughs> sent Paul Revere and a guy named William Dawes to find out exactly how and when the British regulars were going to be coming. So, Sexton Robert Newton in Boston was supposed to go up into the steeple of Boston's Old North Church and put in one lantern if the British were going to be marching overland, or two lanterns if they were going to take a shortcut by crossing the Charles River in boats. People today tend to be, if you're familiar with this at all, it's... Two if by C, which is a nice poetic way of remembering it, but that's not what it was. It's one if by land and two if you're crossing the Charles River, but that's harder to rhyme. So, so Dawes and Revere ride all through the countryside all night long yelling, the regulars are coming out. The Redcoats. 
No, it's a red military. No, no, everyone's the British are coming. They are British. Revere is British. So the idea of saying the British are coming, everyone are gone. We're here. So, so it's, they were saying the regulars are coming out, and they and they wrote and they were specifically telling the the militia leaders they they went over the Charles River. They're going to be here sooner than you think. Which means that by the time Gage's troops marched all the way from Boston toward Concord, by the time they got to Lexington, about two-thirds of the way there, 77 militiamen were standing there waiting for them. And they weren't going to do anything. Nobody was planning to do anything. They were just kind of doing this little chest-puffing show of disapproval. Nobody's, 77 militiamen are not going to open fire on a couple hundred British regulars. That would be dumb. But somebody opened fire. We don't know who. We don't know whether it was one of the one of the militia. We don't know whether it was one of the other British regulars. We have no clue. Somebody fired a shot. Everything got messy. Suddenly, there's this flurry of fire, and eight colonials are dead. Ten are wounded. Everybody scatters, and one British guy gets wounded. And the British go, these guys are bonkers. So they march more carefully on to Concord. That was the Battle of Lexington. Not much of a battle, right? Go on to Concord, and they split the forces to look for the stored munitions. How do they know where it is? Because they're, they're all, they've had plenty of time now to hide the munitions, right? Because Paul Revere, a week ago, came in and said, by the way, they're coming to take your munitions. So how do you know where it is? Oh, the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you ask the loyalists. There's a lot of Tories or British loyalists who didn't support opposition to the crown. Those people are going to help you find everything. Remember, only about a third of the Americans were supportive of the idea of revolution against England. The rest either didn't really care, didn't want to rock the boat, or said, actually, I kind of like England. Only about a third were technically rabble-rousers. That's really all that you need, right? Because the rest of them don't really care or aren't as passionate about it as you are. So if you can get about a third of the people to move forward with you, knock yourself out. So on the one hand, you have a Presbyterian minister named John Witherspoon who preached for revolution from the pulpit. He was also the congregational chaplain. He was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Pastor saying, I'm preaching revolution. So did Peter Muhlenberg, a Lutheran pastor from Pennsylvania who gave his last sermon to his, his flock. He quoted from Ecclesiastes 3.1 and he said, there's a time to preach and a time to pray. There's also a time to fight and that time has now come. Takes off his robes to show a lieutenant colonel's uniform underneath, and leaves the pulpit. That is going to stick with you, right? <laughs> that is total, boom, uniform. I got If he ever wears a cloak, if I ever wear, if I ever wear a cloak of robes, you're going to go, oh man. <laughs> if he got combat boots under that. Flip side of that. Ben Franklin's best friend, Joseph Galloway, who's the Speaker of the House of the Pennsylvania Legislature, opposed rebellion, opposed revolution, so badly he eventually left the colonies in 1778, went back to England, and gave advice to the Crown as how to beat people in America. Because he's like, this is wrong. They're in open rebellion. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We, we gave an oath that this isn't what we were going to do. Anglican minister Jonathan Butcher from Maryland preached the revolution is unbiblical. He cited... Romans 13, 1 through 7. 
saying we have an obligation before God to support our leaders, even the ones we disagree with. We need to obey them unless it would cause us to sin to obey them. If it caused us to sin, fine. Then you could do this. If it doesn't cause you to sin, if you just don't like them, who cares? You have an obligation to respect the place that God has placed them in. So committed to his belief, and he knew how unpopular it was with some of his people, that he actually preached with two loaded pistols in the pulpit. Because he knew that he might get attacked for it. Literally, physically attacked for it. Other people preached, no, 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 it's totally biblical. In fact, we have a biblical mandate. Faith Robinson Trumbull, the wife of the governor of Connecticut at the time, daughter of a Congregationalist pastor, made this needlework. Caught in a tree is Absalom, a freedom-fighting son of the tyrant King David, who sits... He's the hero! Because David is sitting there blindly playing the harp while his kingdom falls apart. Okay, let's go back to, to Scripture. Obviously, David's the good guy, because he wrote so many psalms, right? He has to be the good guy, because we like him. It's not like he murders his own subjects to get their wives. It's not like he turned a blind eye to his son raping his daughter. It's not like he totally ignored his, 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 uh, his political advisor in Ahithophel, and totally ignored his uh, military advisor in Joab, and totally let bad things happen to his kingdom. It's not like Absalom came along and actually did minister to the people in their needs, right? Oh wait, that's exactly what the Bible says, isn't it? So, could you read the Bible as saying that David's obviously the good guy and Absalom is a usurper? Absolutely. Could you read the Bible and say David turned out to be a tyrant king and his son Absalom said, enough of this, I'm going to do this right? So, Absalom says, enough of this, I'm going to do this right. David is sitting there playing his harp and Joab, Absalom's executioner, is wearing a British red coat. It's biblical to have a revolution. So, where would you stand biblically at this time? We've talked about all the stuff leading up to this revolution. What Bible scriptures would you point to if somebody said, now's the time for revolution? Would you find yourself saying, you're right, this is intolerable. We need to revolt against our king. Would you say, no, 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 no. The Bible specifically says the king is there for a reason. Even if you disagree with him, you don't get to rebel. Other people say, no, there's rebellion all over the place in scripture. There's a time for war. Isn't that what Ecclesiastes says? By the way, everybody loves to quote that in Ecclesiastes. There's a time for, which means that now must be that time, right? There's a time to hate, therefore hate is okay. In what context? Are you sure this is that context? I'm not going to ask you to, at, at the drop of the hat right now, but this is, I want you to think about that. Would you, at that time in history, have been a loyalist? Would you have been a revolutionary? Or would you have said, I honestly don't know. I'm going to leave that to other people to figure out. Because people are saying, the Bible tells us not to rebel. And people are saying, the Bible clearly tells us we need to rebel. What do you think? So would you be one of the third saying yes, one of the third saying no, or one of the third going, I really don't want to think about it. I've got other things to do. Okay, so the British split their forces, and conquer. British split their forces to, to find the stored munitions, which is a mistake, because now these colonial militiamen can go, well, we can pick off chunks of British. If there was one big, large British body, we couldn't, but chunks of you running around doing bits of things? Oh, we could totally take you guys out. 
And so they're hiding behind bridges, making sure they use bridges so that the larger British troops have to climb over the bridge and they can shoot them while they're on the bridge, kind of like the Scottish did at Stirling. British are stunned and they have to retreat back to Boston, which means they have to go back through Lexington, right? So when people talk about the battles of Lexington and Concord, it isn't really Lexington and Concord. It's Lexington and Concord at Lexington. Because this time, they were met by over a thousand militiamen who had had time to gather. Because all those guys that scattered didn't just run home. They ran and got everybody else. So they just get pounded on. And the British commanders are, are just mad. As one, as one was talking about, they refuse to fight a civilized battle. We're marching out in the middle of the field. They keep hiding behind walls and stuff and shooting at us. You know, like we taught them to do during the French and Indian War. We taught them guerrilla tactics. And they are doing that. And it bugs us. So by the time they made it limped back to Boston, they'd lost 126 men, had 174 men wounded, and Boston is now surrounded by 15,000 militiamen. It's kind of a huge deal. Now, undeclared war, but it's totally on, right? That same year, the next month, the British fort at Ticonderoga in New York is taken by American militia heroes Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold, right? And the Green Mountain Boys. Everybody starts thinking, wow, you know what? We just took a British fort. We, we, bought the, we, felt the, we made the British run to Boston. We actually have a chance here. Even Quebec thought so. And they were not happy about it. Because they're like, well, you're totally taking that fort to invade Quebec. Which is totally true. That's exactly what we did. <laughs> In August, a couple months later, we're like, all right, now that we've got to Ticonderoga, let's go invade Montreal. And we took Montreal and held it for several months. So Quebec was absolutely true. Everybody's like, we didn't invade Canada. We totally invaded Canada. <laughs> and Benedict Arnold was, again, one of the heroes of invading Canada, even though it didn't end well. Uh, they didn't hold Canada, obviously. But, uh, but Benedict Arnold, another, another hero. Gay guy. Anyway, we're not talking about Benedict Arnold. Let's talk about Washington. Continental Congress chose war hero George Washington to be the commander-in-chief. Like, we need somebody to... We're fighting more and more. We need somebody to direct all this fighting. So one of his first actions was to meet with Gage, and he's like, I hear that you're mistreating American prisoners. You're not giving them medical attention. They're starving. You can't do that. And Gage basically said, I, uh, I don't care. I don't care. They're rebels. They're not an enemy army. They're rabble. I don't have to treat them like you would treat an enemy army. If I were fighting the French, I'd have to treat them well. I'm not fighting the French. I'm fighting British criminals. I can just treat them like criminals. So, now, obviously, this was before the Geneva Convention, so they actually had something back then also. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's this basic understanding of if you mistreat our people, we'll mistreat yours. So nobody did that, which is why Washington said, fine, we'll do the same to yours. We will abuse and torture British soldiers. Washington's personal motto was, the end justifies the action. That's what he put on the stationery. That's what he said over and over again. And if this is what I need to do, I'm willing to torture British soldiers. Is that what you want? And Gage says, okay, fine. Fine. Now, it's interesting when you read a different historian, some of them are like, he didn't mean it. He wouldn't have actually done it. Because he was a classy guy. He was a classy guy. Other people saying, the end justifies the action. And that was exactly what the standing rule was. Don't mistreat our prisoners or we'll mistreat yours. What Washington basically did was say, we are an army, you will treat us as a foreign army, and we will treat you that way. Or, 
We'll just treat each other as belligerents. Is that what you want? I know how this works in the military. I was in it. So you got to follow the rules. It was also Washington who commissioned the first official flag. What does it look like? Betsy Ross did it. It's a circle of stars. Okay. Yeah. Betsy Ross totally didn't do it, and it, and it wasn't a circle of stars. The first flag was this. This is the first American flag, which is basically just the British Navy ensign with six white stripes sewn onto it. But at least it looks different than anything that the British have. Right? And it, and it has 13 lines. So it's, it's you, took, you steal the British Navy ensign, you, you put six stripes on it, and you go, there, 13 lines. We're different. You're not going to confuse us in the field. It was 1777 that you get the Betsy Ross flag, which wasn't necessarily made by Betsy Ross. And even then, you had a whole bunch of other different versions of it floating around. All we knew is that it had 13 stars. In fact, the original description of it was just blue field with 13 stars. So we didn't even know, is it five-pointed stars, six-pointed stars? Pardon me? I was just saying, I like the Yeah, it's kind of cool. Anyway, same year, Bunker Hill. British are under siege down in Boston, right? 15,000 militiamen going, you ain't going anywhere. However, Boston is a port, and England has ships. So a siege isn't going to work real well, because ships can just keep bringing in more supplies. I mean, they can stay there more or less indefinitely. So the militiamen said, how about across the, just across the water here in Charlestown, we can take Breed's Hill and Bunker Hill and put and put artillery there and just bomb the snot out of, out, of, out of the fortifications over here in Boston. If we do that, they have to leave. I mean, who cares how much food they can get in from ships? They don't want to keep getting bombed and pummeled like this. So we're going to put, we're going to put artillery up here on Breed's Hill, and we'll have a northern redoubt up here on Bunker Hill. But when the, the British ships said, well, why don't we just take British troops over to Charlestown? We'll just attack you over there. And so it starts flooding with British troops, and the militia had relatively poor organization. They had very little ammunition, which is why you get the kind of apocryphal but basically correct idea of don't fire till you see the whites of their eyes. It's attributed to Bunker Hill. Probably never said that, but the idea of saying, really, guys, we don't have much ammunition. Do not shoot unless you know you can hit someone. But eventually it ran out. They tried to retreat to Bunker Hill, and the British took that too. Most of the fighting happened on Breed's Hill. So it's technically the Battle of Breed's Hill. But the last thing that was taken was Bunker Hill, so that's the way we tend to remember it. Technically, the British won the battle, but they lost so many guys doing it that one British general later remarked, a few more such victories would have shortly put an end to British dominion in America. <laughs> we can't afford to win like that. Not good. By the way, Joseph Warren died in this battle. I know. It's, it's kind of a huge deal, because he was one of the leaders. He was one of the bright guys. And all of a sudden, they're like, yikes. Anyway, that's right. Actually, yeah. Um, so there's the Olive Branch petition that, that the Continental Congress came up with. They tried one last time to make amends with England. And yes, got to say, even after officially fighting with England over all this stuff, Continental Congress still said, we, we still want peace. That's what we're aiming for. In fact, it was at this point that they specifically asked for a day of prayer and fasting across the colonies. Like, everybody in every colony spend one day where we pray and fast together. This is the nature of the government they're trying to put together. So there's a lot of deists involved, and we've talked about deism here in the class. There's also a lot of strong Christians involved, and they're trying to really, truly see God. So, 
They tried. They're like, let's try to make things right. They wrote an olive branch petition. 32-year-old Thomas Jefferson wrote it, and then it was completely rewritten by a guy named John Dickerson, because they're like, okay, Thomas, you're a little intense. <laughs> we're, we're really trying to make nice here, and you're talking about being enslaved by England, and you really need to stop that, because what we're trying to do is make nice. So, we, we want to clarify to King George, we don't want war. All we've ever asked for is fair trade. Just fair trade. It's all we want. So Dickinson said, tell you what, either England should give, us the, give the colonies the same taxes that everybody else in the British Empire has. Just treat us as if we were sitting in England. Give us the exact same taxes. Or if you say that won't work, fine. Give us no taxes and then just stricter trade restrictions. But just so that we have something equivalent to what everybody else has. It's all we care about. This whole high tariffs on imported goods plus high taxes thing, this is crazy. And we have no representation in Parliament. This is the only way we can get this across. So just be fair. In fact, they even said, you know what, King? You get to choose. You, here's a bunch of different options. You pick a good compromise and we'll go with it. We trust your judgment. Because King George III is a good guy, right? Everybody in America thinks King George III is a good guy. There's, remember, there's a, there's a whole monument to him, right? About how awesome he is and, and how he, he, he thumbed his nose at Parliament when they were being jerks with the stamp, with the stamp back. George III refused to even look at the petition. He's like, I won't even open it. By the time he reached him, he had already drafted a proclamation of rebellion in response to that whole Bunker Hill thing. Because you don't negotiate with terrorists, exactly. He's like, I can't even open it. If I open it, I'm, I'm reading the demands of terrorists. I, I will not look at it. You cannot make demands. You can't even make requests. You have to just immediately lay down arms and say, we're very, very sorry. Then I might be able to work with this. But until then, I cannot, cannot even open this up. But what's interesting is you go, if the, if the petition had arrived even a few days earlier, things would have been very different. If it had, if it had arrived just a few days before he had drafted this, this proclamation of open rebellion, maybe. But you sit there and go, the timing of it. Once you have attacked British troops, once you've taken a British fort, once you have bombed Boston and fought the British, once we've lost so many guys that it's in the newspapers in England, you cannot send me a letter and saying, here's what we want you to do, King. Then we'll play nice. I can't even read this. So John Adams says, ah, George refuses to even open it. Obviously, the British are being completely unreasonable. There's nothing that anything can... War is inevitable. Now, John Adams is either, like, the coolest guy in the Continental Congress, because really a lot of this was designed by John Adams, or he's, like, the worst rabble-rouser. And, and, and total hothead. Total hot, I don't even say hothead. He was actually a very cool head, but totally, I want a war, and so no matter what happens, I'm going to make a war. You know, he's the... Uh, yeah. uh, to bolster British troop strength, which is flagging, and he's also got other wars that he has to deal with. George says, I know that I can hire German mercenaries from Hesse. I mean, my, my family in Hanover, they've got holdings in Hesse. I can get the Hessians over. We just hire some mercenaries. How do the people in America think about that? That's right. They sit there and they go, 
this German king, you know, this is the first king in a long time that's actually English, it's actually a decent guy here. This German king sent foreigners to fight us. 1776, you know, when the war started. Because all this is before 1776. <laughs> familiar with the, what is common sense? Thomas Paine. It got written by Thomas Paine, who'd only come over from England just like a year earlier. Smirky. That's perfect Thomas Paine, though. You want to talk about a rabble-rouser, that's what this guy did for a living. <laughs> um, in fact, um, he wrote a couple different pamphlets over here, and then after our revolution, anybody know what he did? He went, over to, he went over to France and wrote a bunch of stuff for the French Revolution. He just loved himself a revolution. Anyway! <laughs> so he, he argued that Americans absolutely have to revolt against England. You have to. It's a moral obligation. Not only did Britain abuse the colonies whenever they wanted to abuse them, but it's ridiculous. Ridiculous. It's illogical to think that we should submit. First off, it's unreasonable for an island to think it can rule a continent. They're a little bitty island. We're huge compared to them. What are they, bonkers? They can't rule a whole continent. Especially if the continent is an ocean away. We're not even, like, across the English Channel. It's, we're all the way over here. Even if they were totally fair, and they're not, but even if they were totally fair, how much time does it take to deal with any issue? Even the smallest issue. It's ridiculously inefficient. There's no way that they can reasonably do this. And with every passing year, with every passing decade, we're less and less connected to, to Europe in the first place. We don't even know some of the new countries that they're even talking about. Because everything's changing so often in Central Europe. Well, I don't even know where the boundaries are. Does that sound familiar? I mean, we still do that kind of stuff where we go, all right, tell me, tell me the countries in Africa. You know, oh, man. You know, they keep changing all the time. That's the way they felt back then. It's like, we, we hear that Austria-Hungary is having problems. We're like, you mean two countries? No, that's one country now. It's one country now. You know, it's, it's, we're totally divorced from this. And yet, England keeps using us as their cannon fodder. They keep fighting all their battles over here with us, and then taking the stuff from us that they won through us to make peace with the other nations that we don't even care about. Especially since we're not even really British anymore. Do you realize how many nationalities are, are joining this melting pot? You've got German people and Dutch people, even French and Spanish people joining us. Are we really just British colonies anymore? For England or America, to believe that England has some sort of divine claim to rule all these ethnicities is crazy talk. No. No, we have to rule ourselves, he says. Pamphlet is crazy cheap to print, easy to distribute, everybody's reading it. Which means, go back to where we started today, with the whole steam engine and what that did. It means that, for the first time, common people are being asked in civil platforms, in civil contexts, not just rabble in the streets going, oh, burn somebody. You know, it's like, no. They're having town meetings and discussing intelligently whether or not it's reasonable to rebel against their managing authority. You have an organized group speaking against management principles. This is exactly the sort of thing we were talking about earlier. This is the sort of thing that we're now seeing going on in the colonies. Common people actually being able to, to say, management, we disagree with you. Very different way of looking at things. Totally resonates with the 
increasingly democratic Americans totally seems foreign to the Brits. The English nobility that are running things, they're like, who are you? Why should we ever educate the peasants? This is ridiculous. But even the common man in England that every day has to deal with you know, deferring to nobility, did they in America? There wasn't a lot of nobility floating around over here. So, so every day in, in England, they're having to constantly, even the man on the street is constantly going, but I'm conditioned to defer to nobility all the time. In America, we're like, actually, none of us have even seen a nobility for a long time. The idea of deferring to that with every passing year seems more and more alien. And the fact that you still want to play by those rules proves Thomas Paine's point, doesn't it? Later on that same year, Paine followed this up with another pamphlet called The American Crisis that started with the lines, these are the times that try men's souls. It is a great line. He had a gift. He really had a gift. And he's talking about, you know, the summer soldier, the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he who strips his sleeves and stands on them St. Crispin's Day, I mean, the whole argument is like straight out of Shakespeare, the idea of going, if you can stand on something so huge, think about how amazing this will be on the other side. We've got to take a stand. We've got to take a stand on this because anything that's worth anything comes at a price. How much more freedom should come? This is a huge, highly valued thing. Washington made sure that all of his troops read the American crisis. He's like, I want you guys to understand why we're fighting. All of a sudden, British are losing everything. Within the span of a couple of months, before, they, before we even officially declared ourselves independent, the English lost the Battle of Great Bridge and had to withdraw from Virginia. They lost the Battle of Moore's Creek Bridge and lost a lot of influence in North Carolina. They lost the Battle of the Rice Boats, leading to their withdrawal from Georgia. They lost the Battle of Dorchester Heights, leading to their withdrawal from Boston. Boom, 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 boom. It's like we're winning and winning and winning and winning because Washington was smart. And he's like, okay, maybe we can't do it from Charlestown. How about we go south to Dorchester Heights? How about we do the exact same plan from a different direction? I'm going to have a, 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 an artillery emplacement here in Dorchester Heights. I'm going to pound the heck out of Boston from the south. And that wins. May 4th, Rhode Island officially becomes the first colony to officially renounce allegiance to England and King George of 1776. Back in England, David Hartley says, oh, things are... Things are kind of shaking up. Now is a good time to introduce a motion in the House of Commons for the abolition of slavery in English territories. We're going to remove it once and for all. Unfortunately, he's an idiot, and that's really the only way I can explain it. Parliament is just a little busy dealing with rebellion. The idea of like, well, let's open up this can of worms, too. It's like, what were you thinking? And everybody agreed he was the worst, most boring speaker in Parliament. So he gets up and mumbles and stumbles in his words and has to repeat himself because he forgot something. He did a horrible job. Didn't engage anybody. In fact, it died so quickly and so loudly. So many people were so frustrated with him for even bringing it up that even those who were pro-abolition said, well, we're not touching this with a 10-foot pole. You just soured everything for the idea of abolition. Do you see why people like John Newton it's like, if we could just get a good politician working on this. I'm glad, I'm so glad that David Hartley had the right heart. We really need somebody who's not an idiot. <laughs> Please use somebody with the brain. So, 
He's had to try get sick Thomas Paine on this. Unfortunately, he's working for the other side. So, yeah. July 4th comes up, and everybody goes, yeah. Okay. Under Britain's Lord North, uh, England has declared that all American ships of any kind were considered enemy vessels open for attack. Any American ships found on the high seas, fair game. John Adams says, well, then you're treating America as if it were an enemy, right? We are no longer just convicts that you're trying to, to, to get back into ship. You have just declared us enemy vessels. Doesn't that suggest that we're an independent state? Didn't you just make the argument that we are, in fact, the enemy? Not a rabble that you need to corral, but an enemy you need to defeat. Why don't we just make that official? That we're an independent state. Continental Congress goes, no, 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 no. We don't have any authority to declare war or to declare independence or anything like that. We can't, none of us can do that unless our colony gives us the authority to do that. In fact, most of the colonies are still in favor of saying, let's try to work things out with Britain. Should have never gotten this far in the first place, especially the middle colonies. Middle colonies are like, no, no, we can still be friends. The southern ones are like, yeah, we started off as convicts. We don't really like England to begin with. We feel no connection with them. And the northern colonies are like, you know what? We have to fight Quebec a lot. We have to do, we're the ones fighting and dying over here in Ticonderoga. You know, we're fine with leaving this. We're, we're absolutely fine with that. It's so big that Adams actually started working on a secret plan to overthrow the Pennsylvania government. It's like, we will destroy the Pennsylvania government, take over Pennsylvania, and then use them to push for a vote of independence. Again, Adams is either stinking brilliant or like the worst guy ever. So, luckily, North and South Carolina go, all right, you know, let's authorize our delegates to do that. Fine. You're officially authorized to push for a vote of independence. So over the next few weeks, the other colonies eventually did the same. Vote came, and they voted for independence. To write the official declaration, Congress called on a team of five guys. John Adams, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Robert Livingston, and Roger Sherman. They're going to write the Declaration of Independence. Adams says, wait a minute, though. I remember. I remember John uh, Jefferson working on that petition, that Olive Branch petition that we said, no, 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 no. You're a bit too intense. Oh, let's totally let Tom write this. <laughs> That's what we want. We kind of want intense on this one. On June 28th, they presented the final version to Congress for approval, and Congress ripped it to shreds for the next couple of days. In fact, Jefferson said the final version that was adopted had mangled his original and chopped it in half. Totally took out tons of the stuff that he had put in there. Finally, decision to accept the Declaration of Independence, the, the vote for independence, was made on a date that John Adams told his wife would become an American holiday for the, until the end of time, the day that we declared our independence. And that was... It's July 2nd, right? <laughs> the day we declared our independence, it's July 2nd. That's when we voted for independence. That's the day we said we are an independent nation. That's what John Adams thought. From now on, July 2nd will be Independence Day. July 4th was the day they signed it and sent it off to the printer. July 2nd is the day that they actually adopted the Declaration of Independence and said, yes, we, did, we officially today declare our independence. But July 4th is the thing that's actually on the piece of paper. <laughs> and so we sit there and go, oh, that was when we declared our independence. No, that's when we printed our Declaration of Independence. When did they sign it? They actually signed it on, on, on the 4th. They signed it on that day and then sent it off to the printer. But they voted it in. They said, yes, this is what we're going to do. And then we'll just do the final wordsmithing for the next couple of days. But they voted it on July 2nd. Everybody there, everybody writing notes of that day, said, 
this is the day that will go down in history. This is the day that we officially broke away from England, July 2nd. They signed it on the 4th, but it was official two days earlier. By the way, I should say, <laughs> John Hancock signed it really big because he was the president of Congress. He was the first one to sign. It's not that he wanted his signature to be big because he was making some sort of political statement or he wanted King George to read his name. He just didn't take into consideration how much room there was for everybody to sign, which is why you have all sorts of different sizes of signature, and yet you still have some space left over because they're like, wait, I better be small. It's like signing a yearbook where you're like, oh, no, I better start being really smaller. So that's what it was. Anyway, I'll just end with this. Pardon me? Yeah, there you go. It's wacky fun. So, next thing they did was to try to have a peace conference. Again, you have to remember, most people still didn't want a war. Even after we've officially declared independence, we didn't want a war. So in September, we're like, can we please just meet on Staten Island with Admiral Howe and try one more time to have peace? Part of what they were thinking is, now that we've officially declared our independence, instead of being a rabble, you have to deal with us as if we were a foreign power. We need to have a treaty. We need maybe this. If we go through this kind of official channels, then maybe we can do something. Except the House says, I can't do anything. If you had said, we're a bunch of criminals, but we're really sorry, I might have been able to do something. I don't, I'm just, I don't have the authority to do anything about this. I can't, I can't do it. You tied my hands. You guys just said we're a foreign power, an enemy of England. Now can we be friends? No. I can't do this. I'm an admiral, but I don't have the power or the authority to negotiate group, uh, to negotiate peace with a group that just declared themselves rebels. So again, kind of like with that olive branch petition, you know, it, it lasts three hours and it's a total failure. And it's like, if, if you had done this differently, if you hadn't have just, just declared yourselves in, uh, independent, I could have done something, but because you did this, now I can't. You you tied my hands. I almost kind of wonder. Was it a conspiracy? If, if like Adams did this. Oh, I could almost guarantee that Adams did that. I could almost guarantee. Oh, and everything over and over. He's like, look, we tried, but George wouldn't even read it. We tried, but House said, I can't negotiate with you. I'm doing everything I can to keep silent. <laughs> So, Washington gets pounded on in Brooklyn at the Battle of Long Island. And then he wins in Harlem Heights. He's like, yay! And holds off a Hessian force in the Bronx. Yay! It's looking okay! And then Howell lands more troops in New York. And Washington gets pushed out of the city into the forests, just as winter hits. So he's like, I was doing okay, I was doing okay, no, no, I'm losing, I'm losing, I'm losing, I'm losing, I'm losing. The British and Hessians nestle into places like Trenton, New Jersey, across the Delaware River, while Washington's army is falling apart over in the forests of Pennsylvania. Because he's like, I got no food, I've got no... Because everything was in, in New York. We were going to settle in New York for the winter. And then we had to immediately leave New York. We've got nothing. So my guys are deserting right and left. Uh, they're, they're starving. They've got hypothermia. While across the Delaware... The Hessians are well provided for. Okay, you familiar with the term crossing the Delaware? So, he's like, all right, my men are losing morale, losing their lives. The Hessians are just across the river in Trenton. And I know that once January hits and once the Delaware freezes over, they're just going to march right across. And we're toast at that point. And every day we delay, 
we're getting weaker and they're getting stronger. So he's like, I got an idea. Christmas Day, the Hessians are partying because it's Christmas. Nobody fights on Christmas. Nobody does anything like that. So he's like, all right, here's what we're going to do. Very quietly, pack up all of your provisions, pack up all of your ammunition, put new flints in your weapons, and slowly, quietly, while our sentries go about doing exactly what they always do, we're going to get packed up and we're going to get ready to leave. Once the sun goes down about 4.30, it's like we're going to pile into every boat, skiff, ferry, everything we can possibly find that floats. We're going to cross the Delaware in dead silence, in pitch blackness. You want to talk about military precision. If there's any time where you go, this, this is almost like Alexander the Great level military precision. He's like, and every time that we're leaving, we've got a couple of guys in camp singing Christmas songs, and they keep the campfires going, and the sentries are still going. As far as the Hessians know, who are only barely paying attention to us, everything's fine. But the entirety of our forces are crossing the Delaware in the night. Some troops, like I said, left behind to make it look like everything's going. The last guy to step on the last boat was George Washington. He's like, until everybody goes, I'm still here. The last sentries climb on the boats, I climb on the boat, and we go across. So by the time the Hessians go, it's getting kind of quiet over there. We're pretty much already all over. I have a lot of respect for Washington in this. He's like, yeah, your commander-in-chief, last guy to go. And no, he did not stand up in the middle of the boat in broad daylight like an absolute idiot. Dead at night, dead silence, very, everybody very, very quiet. The next day, the day after Christmas, Washington attacks the kind of hungover Hessians in Trenton and takes all their stuff, right? Hessians are forced to surrender. Washington is now well, lots of provisions for his troops. Everybody's happy. They're still isolated, they're still a small group, but man, the morale just goes through the roof. People start enlisting and re-enlisting. Everybody says, oh, I think this can work. And they enter 1777 with this sense of hope, right? That's where we'll pick it up next week because I can't go through the entirety of the American Revolution in one week. Eight but years. Eight years. I'm not going to do We'll get the, we'll do the rest of it next week. We read when they were attacked, they were having a play mocking out the Americans, and there was, like, firing in the fire. <laughs> but they had no idea that the Americans really were coming. Oh, that's a thing of beauty. <laughs> Again, kind of hungover, so that might yeah. have something to do with it, too. <laughs> but I want you to understand, as we start talking about the revolutions and things, there's a context for all this. And there's a, there's a sociological context, but there's also a scriptural context. Even as they're going through making plans for political revolution, there's stuff going on in the church. There's people saying, well, how do we deal with this biblically? And there are other people saying, biblical nothing. It's just wrong, and we know that we don't really need the Bible to tell us whether or not we need to... You tell me, as long as you know your cause is right, do you have to be wise? As long as you know that your cause is right, do you have to actually waste time thinking about whether it's right? Or can you follow your heart and do the right thing because you know it's right? Can't you trust your heart? Or should you actually bounce it against scripture? And even if you do bounce it against scripture, which scripture do you bounce it against? It matters. And an amazing number of people back then actually thought it mattered. And amazing people nowadays, that never seems to matter. Now whether that's a modern problem or it's just a human problem, the key is to stop and go, wait, even if I believe in my heart that my cause is right, shouldn't I stop and think about it? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for the ways that you used even times of turmoil in history to grow your church and shape it and morph it. I thank you for those with the passion to 
to take their day off, their day with you, and turn it into a time to reach out to the children, to provide them with food, to provide them with learning, to provide them with your gospel. I thank you for the people that saw a time of turmoil as a time to reach out in your name and make a difference. Lord, I thank you for all those who genuinely sought your heart rather than trusting your own. And I pray, Lord, help us to appreciate all that has come before us in our country and our church to understand better where we're at today and why. Pray that you be glorified in all things. Amen. Thank you.